Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to part two of our end-of-year special China Geopolitics podcast. But just in case you're listening to this episode for the first time, hello, I'm Jared Watt, the specialist digital editor and podcast producer for the South China Morning Post. Now, in this episode, we're going to look at how China's relationship with the world has changed, specifically with Europe as well as with Japan. We've had some superb reporting and analysis from Finbar Birmingham concerning Lithuania and how its relationship with China has taken a substantial turn over the past few weeks. So it seemed only fitting that hours after we've recorded our interview with him for this episode, there was the breaking news that Lithuania had not only recalled its ambassador to China, but it had pulled out all of its diplomatic staff and closed its Beijing embassy. You're going to hear Finbar recap a year which began with European politicians discussing a comprehensive agreement on investment with China and ended with what looks very much like the weaponization of trade rules with China. And with all the discussion about Taiwan, mainland China and the militaries of different nations floating about in the South China Sea, what of the politics of one of Taiwan's nearest neighbours, Japan? We're going to take you to Tokyo to hear the national narrative has changed in response to the increasingly heated rhetoric over Taiwan and how Hong Kong gets a very special mention at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan. That's all coming up in a special part two episode of China Geopolitics. Finbar Birmingham, if I look back at your story archive on scmp.com, I see one of the first stories of the year you filed was about the comprehensive agreement on investment, what you call the CAI, the CAI. Let me just read the opening line here for you. The China-EU investment deal agreed to in principle on Wednesday has been greeted with a shrug by economists with some questioning whether an under-pressure European Commission has oversold a deal that will not significantly move the needle in economic terms. It's almost a year down the track. Finbar Birmingham, what's your analysis of the CHI? Well, the CHI is, I guess, no longer in the format in which I was discussing back in January. I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago. It's now, we're talking on the 15th of December. The CHI was agreed in principle on the 30th of December, a few days before that, I got a call from my our former colleague, Stuart Lau, who had a copy of the deal before it was finalized, saying, come on, help me go through this. And wow, it feels like a million years ago because such a lot has happened in the interim. I mean, the CHI is politically dead in European parliamentary parlance. It's in the freezer. The MEPs voted to refuse to debate or to even discuss the CHI while sanctions on their members remained. 
the European Commission is still continuing to work on it and doing technical work, translating. They're still sort of discussing minor details around translations with their Chinese counterparts. I think that there are some elements in the Commission that are hopeful, if not optimistic, that they can salvage it at some stage. But I don't see that there's any way to unlock this. This was the sort of flagship sign of Europe's strategic autonomy on China. You know, Europe would continue to plough its furrow with China, despite pressure from the United States, you know, a sort of hangover from the Trump administration where Europe wanted to have an independent China policy, but it's now dead thanks to these sanctions. And I suppose it's it's indicative of the broader relationship, which has really struggled over the course of the year. There was a pretty large backlash from both member states and from the, the members of parliament, uh, European Union member states, some of them were blindsided by this because it was kind of rushed at the end. Yes, it was seven years in negotiation, but it really crept up very quickly at the end. I think the Beijing realized that with the Biden administration coming in to have the EU sign on on this deal, it would be sort of, you know, a bit of a slap in the face for the incoming US government. And we saw at the time Jake Sullivan, who's now the National Security Advisor, really urging even before that he'd taken office, urging the EU to sort of rethink this. So it faced pushback from some members who felt they weren't consulted properly. The MEPs didn't like it from a human rights point of view. At the same time, we had all these headlines going on about Xinjiang, about what was the crackdown in Hong Kong. You know, I remember being in the office of one of the consul generals in Hong Kong, a European diplomat, shortly after the CAI was signed. Exactly one week to the day that it was signed, they arrested, I think it was 52 or 53 opposition politicians in Hong Kong and democratic protesters. And this guy, who was a strong, staunch supporter of completing the CAI at the time, said, this feels like a slap in the face for us. We've gone out on a limb to sign this. We've sort of taken in good faith that China would, you know, improve labor rights and so on. And then a week after that, it's agreed politically, they go and, and do all these arrests. And so he was angered that it made the European Union look silly. So, I mean, that that's where we are. I mean, at the time, the European Commission officials who negotiated the CAI always told us this is part of the toolkit. Don't take it in isolation. And actually, now what we're beginning to see almost a year after the CAI was complete is that the other parts of the toolkit are becoming available or at least becoming visible. I think we talked on the podcast about the anti-coercion instrument, which would give the EU the potential to mitigate or retaliate against perceived Chinese economic bullying, such as the instance with Lithuania we've discussed at length. They're working on a forced labor ban. They're working on a supply chain due diligence mechanism, which would force companies from Europe or who want to work in Europe to know their supply chains inside out and to sort of, again, weed out uh, unsavory parts of the supply chain that, that, you know, are creeping into the European market. They've got the global gateway, which is sort of seen as a maybe quite optimistically seen as a rival to China's Belt and Road infrastructure drive. Just this week in the European Parliament, there was progress made towards an international procurement instrument, which if it comes into law, force companies who want to participate in the EU's lucrative procurement market, companies from non-EU countries have to make sure that their home markets are open to the EU companies as well. We've got rules on foreign subsidies. There's all of this legislation which is coming in pretty thick and fast at the moment. And to be honest, it feels like the CAI was a million years ago when you think about everything else that's going on. We haven't even really discussed sanctions yet, but I mean, there's there's an awful lot going on here and the CAI feels like it's nowhere near being being resolved. So, Finbar, I think the question should be, what's the state of EU-China ties 
right now. I mean, uh, of course, dominant headlines about the US and China, you know, uh, Biden and Xi in their summit and various mini summits being held. What's the state of EU-China diplomacy and relations right now? I guess it depends who you ask. One word we've heard really as a bit of a buzzword since around September here in Brussels was re-engage. EU officials from the institutions were really worried after the sanctions. So remember what happened was the EU, the US, Canada and the UK all joined a multilateral sanctioning effort in March against three Chinese officials implicated for alleged human rights abuses in Xinjiang, which they deny, and one Chinese entity linked to the, the sort of Xinjiang Construction Production Corps. I think I've got that right, XPCC. So China retaliated to the European Union straight away. They sanctioned a load of ambassadors, they sanctioned MEPs, they sanctioned academics and, you know, uh, researchers. This, as I said, you know, really was a, was a tipping point. The Chinese were furious about the EU sanctions. Uh, the EU had sanctioned really quite low-level officials. I mean, one of them was even retired. It seemed to me that it was quite carefully calibrated that they thought this was something they could get away with, so to speak, without incurring such a sort of wrath from Beijing. That was obviously wrong. And after that, we saw a real drop-off in high-level diplomacy between the EU and China. A few months ago, the EU's Director General for Trade, Sabine Wyan, did an interview for a Borderlex, which is a sort of trade publication here in Belgium, in which she talked about how there was a division of labor. After the sanctions came in, Chinese officials didn't really want to speak to their EU counterparts, or maybe they weren't, were told not to. And so you had all the member states freelancing on foreign policy with China. You had like all these flurry of calls between ministers from each of the European states. And at the same time, the EU was being frozen out. And this really spooked Brussels. And so I think we saw this effort in the third quarter of this year to re-engage as, as we kept hearing from diplomats who were involved in the meetings and there was efforts to have a, an EU-China summit before the end of the year. That's not going to happen. Uh, I've been told it's certainly not happening in the next two weeks. So that would be pushed to next year, the format of which is still under discussion. I, I do believe it's going to not be 27 plus one as, as some of the Eastern members like Lithuania and Poland had hoped for. But I mean, EU-China relations are in a, an interesting position. But as I said, it depends who you ask. I mean, look, on Friday last week, we were briefed by four member states and a senior European Union official that on Monday this week, they were going to discuss the Beijing Olympic boycott at the Foreign Affairs Council. This is a monthly meeting of EU's 27 foreign ministers. They didn't discuss it. And this is, to me, indicative of, of the issues with China. I mean, they, a lot, large parts of the European Union don't see it as a priority. They can't even get it on the agenda nor do they ever hope to have unanimity. They don't think they can come to an agreement because on one side you've got Hungary, which is a staunch ally of Beijing. On the other side of the table, you've got Lithuania, which is a sort of staunch ally of the United States. And then you've got a whole bunch of others on, you know, elsewhere on the spectrum in between. And so I think that there's a sort of bit of apathy, I suppose, bleeds into this. Whenever you can't get people to agree on stuff, they just end up not discussing it. So China has struggled to get the attention of European Union leaders. Uh, of uh, you know, So I do think it's in a bit of a weird place where it's a big issue that they're not discussing maybe as often as they should. There was a case in, I think, 
maybe it was November where they were having a, the, the EU's 27 leaders were having a, a summit, an uh, informal dinner in Bordeaux in Slovenia. This was billed as the first time for an entire year that they were going to discuss the relationship with China. And it was reliably informed that China ended up having 10 minutes of the conversation because when these guys get together, they discussed the sort of immediate issues. At that point, they were Afghanistan. There was stuff going on in the southern border. Uh, there was this Belarusian situation. The Western Balkans was kicking off. And at that point, I was kind of a little bit nonplussed. What's going on here? And, you know, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. You know, the United States is sort of obsessed with China. It's in a position where it's the world's number one power and it's under threat of losing that to China. The European Union and the UK, I suppose, you know, Europe, broadly speaking, hasn't been top dog for a long time. And, you know, it's a matter of history and geography. They have so many other issues that are more immediately pressing. When you've got the threat of Putin, Lukashenko, when you've got stuff kicking off in the Middle East, uh, when you've got the migrant crisis at your southern border, suddenly China doesn't necessarily feel like the most priority, the biggest priority that you should be discussing. So, I mean, I guess that colors the debate a lot. There are a lot of really good people working within the EU on China issues, but sometimes I, I just feel like they struggle to get their voices heard. So just to turn about, you know, what parts of this side of Asia do resonate in the EU-China relationship, you know, we can look at, as I say, the archive of your stories on scp.com. We started the year and the EU-China narrative very much featured Hong Kong. But we end this year and Hong Kong's no longer being talked about. It's all about Taiwan. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. If not all about, then certainly I would say Taiwan has supplanted Hong Kong as the issue du jour. Although Hong Kong was discussed at a working group level meeting a few weeks ago, I was thinking maybe that they would have something coming ahead of LegCo elections in December. So look out for that. I think we might see a sort of EU statement or something like that, but nothing nothing dramatic. Yeah, I mean, the Hong Kong situation has faded. I do feel like it absorbed headlines here for quite a long time. I mean, before I was here, you know, I was in Hong Kong when probably Hong Kong was a big issue in the European papers and the European media. But Taiwan since September has really been the sort of biggest China-related issue. It's a product of the actual news cycle. You know, there was a lot going on with the incursions into airspace over the national days in October. You know, Taiwan is a very effective lobbyist. You know, in Europe, they've got the ears of many of the parliamentarians. Uh, You know, the US has obviously been a big factor in this, promoting relations with Taiwan. And then, of course, you've got what we've discussed at length in Lithuania with the opening of a Taiwanese representative office, which has again brought the issue of the one China policy and of sort of the whole jigsaw of China, Taiwan into the limelight, you know, so it was a surprise to me, I suppose, by how quickly it crept up. At the same time, I was a little bit disappointed that there wasn't more, I suppose, interest in Hong Kong as, you know, somebody working here in Brussels for a Hong Kong newspaper. It's not really discussed that often. And when I talk to officials from the commission, they, they do say that it, the commission's also led by the news cycle. So, you know, if, if the mainstream papers are reporting on, on Hong Kong, then the commission will sort of react to that, which is probably not my sort of preferred method of, of governance, but this is the modern age, you know, and I think that the, another issue with Hong Kong has been, you know, they can't really get anything done because of the Hungarian position. I reported quite a lot in the probably the first three, four months of the year about how the European Union had been trying to 
produce new conclusions, as they call them in Hong Kong, measures that were supposed to, I suppose, punish Hong Kong slash China for the crackdown on democracy, for the electoral reform, for the national security law, but they couldn't get them through because the Hungarian quite simply kept blocking them. So I think that disincentivized keeping it on the agenda. I mean, as we discussed, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on here. So if you're flogging a dead horse, it doesn't look like it's got any hope of progressing, then why not move on to something else? I do get the sense here that in Europe, generally, politicians feel like there's nothing really they can do about Hong Kong. You know, that there's a lot of hand-wringing about the sort of crackdown on democracy. You do still see the odd statement about, for instance, ahead of the LegCo, as I said, we'll probably see something. The UK had a report about Hong Kong out yesterday, which was it was really interesting reading because it reminded me of this, how much happened in terms of the news in Hong Kong in the first six months of this year. But, but in general terms, I, I kind of feel like there's a sense of helplessness with regard to Hong Kong. There's nothing really that they feel that they can do to materially change a situation which they disapprove of in Hong Kong. Whereas Taiwan, I feel like maybe there's a sense that if they make enough noise now, then they can maybe have some influence over what happens in the future there and in terms of what, how China deals with the Taiwan situation. I don't know whether that's true, but certainly that's my sense from speaking with very senior politicians across Europe, like not just in Brussels, in Berlin, in London. You know, that, that, that seems to be my takeaway anyway. Do you get any sense that there is an added strategic importance of Taiwan, given the SMIC, the world's home for making, uh, you know, high-powered microchips? I yeah, absolutely do. I think that the European Union sees Taiwan as a potential partner in producing its own chips. There's a lot of navel-gazing, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know why it's taken them so long to realise that they don't produce enough of that stuff here in Europe, but they're waking up to it now. In September, we saw Ursula von der Leyen, she's the European Commission president, reveal this European Chips Act, where they would try and make indigenous microchips, semiconductors, whatever you want to call them here in Europe. And they need Taiwan's help with that. You know, when I was in Lithuania a few weeks ago, I was talking to people who had spoken about the, the ability for Lithuania and Taiwan to collaborate on this because Lithuania produces a lot of silicon. And so they were sort of, when there was a Taiwanese business delegation going through the country, they had sort of scoped out a few sites where they may be able to work together and so on. I do think that this is something the European Union is very interested in, is collaboration on this front. Taiwan is really desperate for Europe to agree to start talks on a bilateral investment agreement, which the European Union has told me they won't do. But on chips, I definitely think that there's there's mileage for them to do something on that. And I do think we'll see major moves on that probably in the new year. So Finbar, that naturally leads me to ask, what's coming up? What do we see coming ahead for both the EU-China relationship and in the general geopolitical moves in your region? Yeah, I think if I at the start of this year had sort of looked ahead, I would have looked at the German election as being a sort of moment where, where things might change and that will still resonate through next year. We have more elections too, France and Hungary. Those are really important. You know, Emmanuel Macron is up for re-election. He faces pressure from the left and the right, probably more significantly from the right at this stage. 
And, you know, he's been a sort of real champion of the strategic autonomy strategy of, of the European Union. So, I mean, if he goes, then then what happens there? If he stays, then is he the most powerful man in Europe after Angela Merkel leaves? And how much say does he have over the EU's China policy? Hungary is a really interesting one as well. I mean, as we've mentioned on this podcast many times, they are a staunch ally of Beijing within the European Union. They, you know, frequently block conclusions related to China. And Viktor Orban, the, the authoritarian ruler there, is is under pressure. You know, he's tied in the polls with the opponent. I interviewed his opponent, Peter Markizeki, in, I think, in November here in Brussels. And he told me that if he was to come in, he would totally review the entire relationship with China. Hungary's not like a dominant member of the EU, but in how the European Union works in foreign policy, it's all about unanimity. And so if you remove one of those blockers, then, you know, does it open the door for something to change? I mentioned a whole load of legislation at the top of the podcast, you know, the supply chain stuff, the anti-coercion instrument. I do think that a theme that we might see in 2022 is the EU beginning to weaponize its market. You know, this is something that is actually a power that the European Union has. I mean, it's a huge consumer market. It's a huge economic block. And, you know, businesses want to be here. Perhaps this is the most potent weapon that the EU has. There's a lot of talk about an EU army and all that sort of stuff. And as somebody who grew up in the EU, I find it sometimes a little bit uncomfortable with the thought. But the market itself, the single market, is, I would say, the EU's most powerful tool. And I think that they are going to start weaponizing this a bit more with all these instruments that I mentioned. China won't like this. You know, China wants to have access to this. So is this a powerful enough tool to force some behavior change from China or is it going to lead to some more fractures in the relationship that would be really interesting to watch this week I got a message from a source saying that the Chinese ambassador to the European Union Zhang Ming is going to be leaving in the next few days so that's one to watch as well Zhang Ming is quite well liked in Brussels he's not seen as a wolf warrior diplomat as some people term you know the more aggressive Chinese overseas envoys he's seen as somebody in the sort of old school cloth of diplomacy he's um, you know very pleasant man and um, you know his message is often the same as other diplomats but it's coated in you know fine diplomatic language you know he is not one who takes to twitter to fire off these diatribes against his host nations so who do they appoint to succeed him and whoever it is and whatever their style is will be indicative perhaps of where Beijing sees the relationship and how it feels like what levers it needs to to push on this if it puts in a wolf warrior then perhaps Beijing believes Europe needs more stick than carrot that will be really interesting to watch too but I mean look Things don't change really as quickly here as they might do in the United States. That's something I've learned since I moved back to Europe earlier in the year. Things move slowly. It's, you know, but when they lock in, they lock in for good. So it's going to be fascinating to watch it unfold. You know, don't expect major fireworks, but there'll be plenty of small devil bangers along the way. And always plenty to talk about and plenty for you to file on on SEMP.com. Finbar Birmingham, thank you very much for all your work through the year. It's always been a pleasure having you on the microphone and uh, have a lovely Christmas. You too, Jared. Happy Christmas. Hey, I'm Jasmine, the other podcast producer here at the South China Morning Post. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our new podcast newsletter, The Listening Post. Each week, we'll give you a recap of what we worked on, reviews of podcasts we've been listening to, and a behind-the-scenes of SCMP podcast production. Subscribe now for our end-of-the-year edition at scmp.com newsletter. 
We're going to have a short break and be back in a new year. Peter Langan is a senior editor with our China desk and is currently based in Tokyo. Peter, hello. Hey, hi, Jared. Nice to speak to you again. It is a pleasure. We were very keen to get some in-depth analysis of how Japan and its relationship with China has changed over the year for this interview episode. And in the most timely fashion, I find you are at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan, having just attended a special presentation titled Japan and China, The Way Forward. Peter, can you tell us about the keynote speaker and what was the gist of the presentation? The keynote speaker was uh, a gentleman named Bonji Ohara. He's a senior fellow with the International Peace and Security Department at the Sasakawa Peace Foundation. But he's also a man with significant military experience in uh, Japan's Navy. And then he was based in China for about three years as a naval attache and served as chief of intelligence at the Maritime Staff Office of Japan's Ministry of Defense. So very interesting chap with all the credentials about the particular topic. I guess one of the overriding themes of his talk and what people are most concerned about is the likelihood for a military conflict over Taiwan, a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan to achieve that unification that China has said repeatedly and unequivocally will happen. He saw the the likelihood of military action being really low. He sees China is, of course, worried by possible intervention by the US and stressed the point that neither China nor Japan want war. But they are very much now in a, a period of deterring each other. So that was one of the overriding themes. And he kept repeating that he didn't see a military conflict as likely. Someone asked him the question, well, what about in the next 10 years? And he says, I don't see a military conflict over Taiwan in the next 10 years. I mean, he he did give a caveat to that, sorry, to, to carry on. But that all depends, of course, on the behavior of all the parties involved. But judging um, all the various elements as he sees it, he doesn't see a hot war. Which in itself is just a nice, refreshing change from the fairly uh, belligerent tone we've heard from uh, various aspects of the Western media, as well as uh, the media from uh, mainland China. But, you know, as I mentioned at the start, there's been a discernible shift in Tokyo's approach both to China and issues concerning Taiwan. How have you seen this change based where you are in Tokyo? Take us through the change you've seen occur this year. We've had, of course, the comments from various politicians. The most prominent recently has been former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. But in Japan's media, there's been a definite hardening of the tone, if you like, not just over the the issue of Taiwan and how that's come to the fore in terms of a a potential military conflict, but also what's perceived as China's activities in Xinjiang, uh, what's happened in Hong Kong with the national security law, the crackdown on dissent, and so on. So there's definitely been a, a shift in Japan's media with concern and worry about those developments 
I mean, one little anecdote about that is that here in the foreign press club in Tokyo, at the entrance to the library and the um, media room, is a display of the final editions of the Apple Daily, which is for everyone to see with a notice on saying, you know, Apple Daily's final publication before it was shut down in Hong Kong. So there is that the sense of uh, concern about what is happening. I'll just go back. You made that, that, that reference there to former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. One of the most recent and most strident public comments from Mr Abe came just a couple of weeks ago when he warned Beijing that any incursion into Taiwan would be, quote, economic suicide. Now, that's very different to the kind of focus on military action we've heard from you know, US and Australian politicians in particular. Take us through that. What was interesting about that for you? Well, yes, that particular term, uh, I think, is is very um, intriguing. And I I asked the question, Mr. Taro Kono, who's a, a former foreign minister and, and defense minister in Japan, a couple of weeks ago. He kind of sort of dodged it somewhat, but I asked the same question today. And again, I didn't get really a clear answer, just that there are enormous economic considerations involved in in a potential military conflict. Um, One of the points brought up is Taiwan's production of semiconductors that are essential to a lot of Chinese exports and and how military action would bring about what could be fairly devastating economic uh, sanctions on China by this coalition of Western nations I asked Mr. O'Hara today that question of we have so much talk in the media about weapons of destruction, you know, the the next biggest aircraft carrier, who's got the fastest missiles and what have you. But I did ask him that question, but we've got the examples of the U.S. in Vietnam and most recently in Afghanistan where an invasion has taken place. But how do you win the peace The way he responded to that was more, if we look at it in a sort of a one-dimensional framework of a full-blown military attack and then trying to subdue the 24 million people that live in Taiwan, yes, that's a valid question. But he brought the conversation back to this so-called gray zone between the peace and hot war, like all of the things that can happen in that China could do to undermine Taiwan, such as I mentioned, economic blockades, disinformation campaigns, cyber attacks, and create conditions whereby Beijing, I guess, would hopefully expect to be invited in to solve these problems. So that's how he explained one of the strategies of how a country can undermine a target country. And I guess that fits with what he was saying about when asked about military conflict, he said he doesn't see it happening in the next 10 years. So perhaps those things are what we're going to see more of as time passes. And and conversely, he said the US and its allies could do something similar if they feel Taiwan is being unduly threatened by these methods. So it works both ways. So anyway, according to his conclusion, we are most definitely in the grey zone. Now, something that's often been overshadowed by the reports of US military involvement 
both in the Taiwan Strait and in the South China Sea and its bases in Japan, has been the substantial increases in the Japanese military itself, known conspicuously as the self-defence forces. Can you just take us through that, the, the change in Japan's military posture? Yes, well, Japan's defence spending has set records for seven straight years. And in fact, there's just been another supplementary budget with more money allocated. Nobody's making any excuses for what this is about. It's most definitely being argued that it's needed because of the rising threat, not just from China, but also North Korea and so on, which is another primary issue for Japan, of course. But certainly China has come front and center as the military threat and how Japan has to be prepared for that. I mean, one one point to make is that thinking about the geography here, Taiwan is just 500 kilometers from Okinawa. And there are other Japanese islands in that chain that are much, much closer to Taiwan. And so geographically, it's happening on such an, uh, a military conflict in Taiwan is happening on Japan's doorstep. I mean, to give a comparison, it's what, it's a thousand kilometers from Beijing to Shanghai. So it's half that distance. So Mr. O'Hara today did say that, that any military conflict on Taiwan would obviously cause all kinds of disruption in and around that area, which involves Japanese territory. And that includes disruption of trade, disruption of all kinds of seaborne traffic, et cetera, et cetera. So hence why Mr. Abe has has been referring to an attack on Taiwan as a matter of an emergency for Japan itself. So can I get you just to reflect on, you know, the national conversation of Japan, how the Japanese media and political class are talking about relations with China and the issue of Taiwan. I I know the Murdoch media in Australia is running almost a daily kind of chorus of the drums of war sounding. In fact, that phrase was actually used. What's the conversation like in Japan right now about Taiwan and the prospect of some sort of military conflict? Well, again, coming back to Japan's media, the one is really the tone is really one of growing concern about the the potential for a military conflict. And as just explained, it would be effectively on Japan's doorstep. And as Mr. Abe has made clear, and and other Japanese politicians have followed up in saying that, you know, this will directly affect Japan and it would be this emergency for Japan. So certainly the media here is reflecting that tone and concern. Also, significantly in opinion polls, the view of China is deteriorated quite significantly over the last year or so, again, around the same concerns. It's not just about Taiwan, but also looking at Xinjiang and what has happened in Hong Kong. We've discussed former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Take us through current Prime Minister Kishida. Is he taking a more hawkish stance publicly? Well, he certainly hasn't uh, stepped away from what Mr Abe has said. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any daylight between the various LDP politicians who've been talking about this. Like I say, Mr Abe's comments have 
the emergency for Japan, economic suicide for China. These are very strong comments, uh, something you couldn't have imagined coming out in Japan just a couple of years ago. But now it seems to be quite accepted. And Mr. Kishida has uh, also made clear that he's increasingly concerned about Taiwan and the threat of military action. And again, has repeated, keeps repeating about human rights and the threats to human rights in China. And again, the issue around Hong Kong. Peter Langan, this has been fascinating hearing this update. I feel this has been a real missing part of, of, of media coverage in this discussion about Taiwan, about the dynamic between uh, the US and, and China. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this week's and this year's China Geopolitics podcast. As always, there will be events that happen, normally about 10 minutes after we publish, that will change the context of the podcast you just listened to. As ever, a reminder to you that all the breaking news and expert analysis about what just happened, why it happened, and what might happen next can be found at scmp.com. We're taking a break for a couple of weeks. I hope you can get one as well. We'll see you in the new year. My name's Jared Watt. Thank you ever so much to Jasmine Zer, who's sitting in front of me, mixing this podcast and putting all of the podcasts together. It's been a great year. Hope to see you next year. Until then, bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.